This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Three vignettes to get started. Um, it might be a grandpa you have to ask. It might be a father you have to ask. It might be a great-grandfather you have to ask. Let's just say someone born uh, before 1930, okay? And you're back in the 60s. You're talking to them. And you say, I'm going to use my grandpa because I know how this would work out with him. Say, Grandpa, do you have job satisfaction? (laughs) Why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? Um, if, if my grandfather understood the question, <laughs> here's how he'd respond. He'd say, well, I, I mean, I've got food on the table. I've got clothes on my kids' backs. And I've got a roof over their head. In his case, he'd say, I'm, I'm home at night and I'm in church on Sunday mornings. Yeah, I've got job satisfaction. Now, we ask that question today, what's the response going to be? (laughs) And you say, well, not that. (laughs) Not that. Well, I like what I do. I like what I do. I like the people I work with. The skills I have, I use during the day. When I wake up in the morning, I actually feel a twinge of excitement over what I get to do that day. That's vignette number one. Vignette number two, this is more for musical people. As a music major in college, we had a class called Literature and Styles in Music, and it was two years, four semesters. We studied, we went from ancient Greece all the way to modern day music, and we studied the history, the composers, the styles of that kind of music, and Oftentimes, we, as an assignment, were, had to compose a piece of music in that particular style we were studying. Okay? Now, as a music major who was not classically trained before I launched into this degree, it was all rock and roll. I'm writing, so we, we're in Bach, right? We're in the Baroque period. So I'm writing a contrapuntal piece of music on the harpsichord, and, uh, and I'm, I'm writing my stuff, and I get it back, and there is red marked all over this thing. <laughs> I had all kinds of things I was doing in there that were not in the style of the Baroque period. Did you know that in some of these eras of music, there were unwritten rules to musical composition? No parallel fifths. Well, that's all rock and roll is. Power chords, parallel fifths. There were no descending major second chord movements. You would not move from a D chord to a C chord in the Baroque period or the classic period or most of it. I didn't know that. What is, what is musical composition today? You got any of that going on? Not really. What do you write? Ah, Whatever sounds good to you. Whatever feels good. Whatever strikes your ear as, ah, that's nice. Third vignette, dancing. 
is between you and me. Um, not long after my wife and I were married, I agreed to take ballroom dancing lessons with her. Okay, this is, stays between the two of us, okay? It was at the Y. Of course, everything's at the Y. On Sunday afternoons, when NACAR's racing, So, I go in to learn how to ballroom dance. Question, did you know there were, like, prescribed steps? Like the waltz. Did you know there's prescribed steps for this? When I hear dancing, I'm thinking, okay, I mean, who can, everybody can do that, right? Just, just move around. It's fine. Foxtrot, tango, prescribed, like scripted steps. Scripted. Like you have to learn the stuff. Your foot goes there, not there. I didn't know. This was very difficult. This was very difficult. What is dancing today? That's classic ballroom dancing. What is, you go to a modern night nightclub, what are you going to see? A little foxtrot going on? <laughs> Now, this, this gets ratcheted up another level because there's this thing called quiet clubbing that has dawned. You know what quiet clubbing is? Well, I'll tell you. You go into a dance club, and there are headphones hanging there. They're color-coded. Might be yellow, orange, green. Each color indicates a type of musical genre that's being played through those headphones. And everybody picks what color they want because they have a particular genre. They put it on, right? And they all go out into the floor, and they dance. It's quiet clubbing. <laughs> Prescribed steps, scripted steps. No, it's chaos. It's absolute chaos. Three vignettes. What accounts for this evolution? From job satisfaction, musical composition, dancing. What accounts for this? What has happened? What has happened? Charles Taylor writes this. He says, each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. In other words, don't follow musical composition rules. Don't worry about learning scripted dance steps. Do what you want. Do what feels good. Now, if you want a startling example of this, think about the statement... I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Now, I have preached on gender dysphoria and transgenderism in the past. You can go online to look for, see if we've got the archive somewhere on that. I'm not tackling that per se today. But think about that statement. I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Now, my grandfather would not have understood that statement. It would have confused him. Today, we understand it. In many circles, it's, it's a, a heroic statement. 
Don't worry about the external law of your biology. Change the external law of your biology to match what you feel to be true. We don't even entertain notions today that desires and feelings might be wrong and the body is right. Now, from a theological and a philosophical perspective, this is the erosion of what's called natural law. Nature's laws. That is, when God created the world, he embedded in it all sorts of law. This is the way he wanted creation to work. It's the erosion of that. The undoing of what God has made and declared to be good. So from job satisfaction to musical composition to dancing, even biology, the trend you see is very clear. Human feeling and desire is sovereign. Human feeling and desire is sovereign. You want to know what's going on underneath the things that we see. This is it. Human feeling and desire is sovereign. In large part because the self has been divinized. There is no God. There are gods. We're going to perform a surgical operation on feeling and desire today. Two points. Where feelings come from and how to train them. Where feelings come from and how to train them. First, where feelings come from? Where do they come from? Where do they come from? Jesus gives us an answer to that question in Mark 7. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. I realize that Jesus used the language of thoughts, but are feelings implied in this list? Does murder involve feelings? I think we would say yes. Jesus makes it explicit when he says this, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So Jesus links anger with murder. There's emotions involved. What about adultery? Is emotion involved in adultery? Jesus says this, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He links lust with adultery. The word slander more literally means abusive speech. It's loaded with emotion. What I want you to see is that the list of behaviors that Jesus takes off here are deeply emotional. Now question, where do they come from? Because many people will say, well, I have to be authentic to who I am. My desires, my feelings, I have to be true to those. I have to be true to them. I look inside. I find my desires. I find my longings and I work to satisfy them. I work to express them to the world. This list that Jesus just ticked off, rather negative one, where does it come from? From within. 
out of a person's heart. All these, these are his words, not mine. All these evils come from inside. Emotions come from within. Now, people may try to convince you, I can't help the way I feel. I can't help what I desire. I can't help what I want. They're not independent entities that impose their will on us. They don't come from outside us. They come from within. Jesus said it. With the tip of the cap to Paul Tripp, some of you have seen me do this before. Just watch this. It's water. Okay. Watching? Everybody watching? Watch. Okay, question. Why did water come out? You're going to say, because you shook it. Nimrod. <laughs> yeah, I got it. I got it. I shook it. Let me change the question a bit. Why did water come out? Because that's what's in it. Circumstances don't put in you something that's not already there. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, all these evils come from inside. Circumstances merely reveal what's already inside us. Feelings are indicators, listen, feelings are indicators of heart-sourced values and beliefs. Feelings are indicators of heart-sourced values and beliefs. Our hearts are Jack Sparrow's compass. They don't tell us the truth, they just tell us what we want. So our current cultural climate would lead us to believe that everything we find inside us is good. Our feelings, our desires are good. They're authoritative. They ought to be obeyed and acted upon because if you don't, you are inauthentic. Are they good? Should they be acted upon? Well, in the examples that Jesus gives us, anger, murder, lust, adultery, we can say, no, our feelings and desires are not always good. Jesus is just reaffirming truth we find other places in Scripture. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful. <laughs> Look at that prepositional phrase. Deceitful above all things. There is nothing more deceitful than the human heart. And it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3. That doesn't mince words. Nobody is righteous. No one does good. Our throats are open graves. Our tongues practice deceit. Our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. The world around you is telling you, Look inside. Find your desires. Find your feelings. They're meant to be satisfied. For you to deny that is to be inauthentic. And, and in today's climate, it goes further than that to say to deny your desires, to deny your feelings is actually the essence of oppression. The Bible is saying, hey, wait a minute. You know, there is something about being honest 
with who you are on the inside and the outside. The Bible has a lot to say about hypocrites. One thing on the outside, different on the inside. But the Bible also does say, you know, when you go inside and you rummage around in your own heart, you might find you've got some problems. Yeah? There might be something wrong with us. There is a, a song that was sung. It's a platinum award-winning song. I want to read the lyrics to you because it summarizes well our current state. Here's the verse. In this world, it's hard to tell the shadow from the light. All right, I'm on board so far. That can be tough, right? Satan's name is deceiver. He tries to make bad things look good. He tries to make good things look bad. What is real can find a way to hide behind the lies. Yep, I got that. Don't be fooled or ruled by voices all around you. Okay. Because your road will always be revealed. That's the verse. That's the verse. Because your road will always be revealed. Now here's the chorus, the thing that's sung over and over again. Your road will always be revealed if you lead Lead with your heart. It's the one thing you can trust to always come from love. And it will shine right through the dark like a northern star to show what is true. You'll never lose if only you will lead with your heart. The Italian theologians have a term for that. Bologna salami. But this is the creed of the world we inhabit. Personal feelings, desires, tastes, preferences are good and need to be satisfied. This is what you're told every day. But it doesn't ever seem to dawn on us that there might be a problem with what's inside. The Bible goes to great lengths to show us the degree of our inner corruption. And it's so extensive that what we feel, desire, and prefer are capable of being heinously evil. So what we need is not emotional satisfaction. What we need is heart transformation. A thorough remaking of our very nature. So Christian, I want to talk to Christians with the second point. How do we train our feelings? In the first instance, it's good to be aware of all I've said in point one. Christian, you need to know that. But how do we train our feelings? Let me mention four practical ways we can do that. We're not looking for emotional elimination. We're looking for emotional transformation. How do we train them? Number one, engage the mind. Engage the mind. Your mind is like a vacuum cleaner that's always on. Wouldn't you love at the end of the week to be able to take a look at all that you've consumed with your mind during the course of a week? You like open up the vacuum cleaner bag, see what's inside, see what you sucked up during the week. And what goes in has a 
remarkable ability to influence how you feel. It has a remarkable influence to impact what you want, what your desires are. The mind and the emotions are not compartmentalized. Scripture ties those two worlds together. Look at it, Isaiah 26. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Notice the connection between experiencing peace and trusting God, between experiencing peace and having our thoughts fixed on God. If your thinking life is like a diet, if your thinking life is like a diet, what percentage of the pie is your diet consumed with thoughts of God? Lamentations 3. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. Recalling to mind thoughts of God's love, compassion, faithfulness. This produces hope. Where are you putting your mind? Where are you putting your mind? We need to learn the proactive exercise discipline of fixing our minds on the right things. Too often our emotional instincts get malformed because we don't aggressively put our minds in a God-honoring, Christ-exalting direction. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones pastored a church in London during the early to mid-1900s. He pastored his church through the Great Depression. He pastored his church through World War II. He's worth listening to. He was once offering counsel um, on the topic of depression. On depression. Here's what he said. He said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? <laughs> you must take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself, question yourself. Then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. You picture this? Picture having an out-of-body experience, right? You got there's two of you, okay? The preacher now is going to grab the other you, grab you by the collar, shake you a little bit, and start preaching. No, don't listen to yourself. Listen, preach to yourself. Don't listen to yourself. Preach to yourself. We have an example of this. Psalm 42. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? See, he's preaching to himself. Put your hope in God. A little shake. Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. The psalmist is taking himself in hand. is preaching to himself. Preaching. In order to cultivate godly emotions, we need to train our emotional instincts. One tactic to employ in training our emotional instincts is engaging the mind and learning the art of preaching God's truth to yourself rather than listening to yourself. Preaching God's truth to yourself rather than listening to yourself. 
Second, in order to train our emotional instincts, we need to participate in worship. An African pastor once said of his congregation, when we are happy, we sing. And when we aren't happy, we sing until we get happy. I like it. The 18th century pastor and thinker Jonathan Edwards would agree. He writes, the duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and do it with music. But only that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections. I really believe that one of the reasons God created human beings with the ability to make music and sing is that these have the power to impact us emotionally. We weren't created to express only cognitive responses to God. We were made emotional creatures. And God wants our emotions to respond to him appropriately. Music and singing help excite and express, to use Edwards' terms, emotional responses to truth. How many of you recognize the name Yip Harburg? Yip Harburg. Those of you who are still having children, keep in mind the name Yip. (laughs) He wrote all the lyrics for the songs in The Wizard of Oz. Including the classic, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Yeah. Harburg famously once said, words make you think a thought. Music makes you feel a feeling. A song makes you feel a thought. A song makes you feel a thought. (laughs) Singing helps us process the emotional dimensions of cognitive thought. This is why this African pastor's quote has merit. When we are happy, we sing. And when we aren't happy, we sing until we get happy. Music and singing possesses the ability to help us feel truth. And there is no more important thing to feel than truth. In the Bible, there's a profound link between experiencing God's salvation and expressing the joy of that through music and singing. When God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt, Miriam takes a tambourine in hand. As all the women follow her with tambourines and dancing, dancing, dancing. And she sings to them, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Exodus 15, if you read it, describes an epic worship service. Absolutely epic worship service. They were given a great salvation and they experienced joy as a result of it. And the culmination of that joy is singing. The culmination of your joy in salvation in Christ is singing. Psalm 98, Isaiah 12, other places where the same thing occurs. The message is consistent. Where there's salvation, there is joy. And where there is joy, there is singing. 
This word sing or some version of occurs more than 200 times in the Bible. That's more than the word grace. It's no wonder Christianity has been called the singingest religion in the world. Might it be that God created us with the capacity to make music and sing in order to make music and sing so that we learn to feel the emotional depths of the truth of the gospel? In order to train our musical instincts, we need to participate in worship. And by the way, not just on Sundays. During the week. Hey, listen up. During the week, what thoughts is your playlist making you feel? Your playlist. Playlist. What thoughts is it making you feel during the week? Maybe you should rethink I did it my way. <laughs> Pay close attention to what thoughts your playlist is making you feel during the week. Third, in order to train our musical instincts, we need to commit to prayer. Commit to prayer. Luke chapter 5, yet the news about him spread all the more, so the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus knows what it's like to be busy. His, his reputation was, 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 has gone viral, miracle working, right? People always wanted a piece of him. There were always texts. There were always emails to be answered. People knocking at his door. Jesus was also the preeminent example of an emotionally healthy human being. How could that be? Well, even in the face of incessant demands, the text says Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So listen, if Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, God in human flesh, felt he needed time away by himself to pray, what makes you think you can afford not to? I believe there is a direct link between a lack of private prayer and a lack of godly emotions. How's your private prayer life? What's it look like? What's your emotional state these days? Hmm? Lillian Gill tells an amusing story of an occasion when she and her husband were driving along and happened to notice a late model Cadillac with its hood up parked on the side of the road. Its driver appeared somewhat perplexed and agitated and Mrs. Gill and her husband pulled over to see if they could offer assistance. And the stranded driver hastily and somewhat sheepishly explained that he had known when he left home that he was rather low on fuel, but he had been in a great hurry to get to an important business meeting, so he didn't take the time to fill his tank. That's all it needed was some gas. Well, the guilds happened to have a spare gallon of fuel with them, so they emptied it into the thirsty Cadillac and, and told the driver that there was a gas station just a few miles down the road and Thanking them profusely, he sped off. Twelve miles later, same car, hood up, stranded, side of the road. This time the driver even a little more irritated. So what the guilds do? They pulled over again. He was in a hurry. He said, you know what? I'll risk it. Roll the dice. Ran out of gas. Didn't make it. Now, it's hard to believe anybody would be so stupid until we realize this is exactly what we do with our lives. 
pressing from one thing to the next, never stopping to refuel or never stopping to withdraw to a lonely place to pray. And the driver illustrates what happens when we try to press on to the next thing, never stopping to pray. Agitation. Agitation. In order to train our feelings, we need to commit to private prayer. Last, in order to train our feelings, we need to give. Social scientists have been noticing for some time now the correlation between overconsumption with a negative emotional state. Christian sociologist Christian Smith noticed the corollary was true as well. He did this massive study on the subject of generosity. He published his findings in a book called The Paradox of Generosity. And in his surveys and interviews with Americans, he discovered a correlation between, in his case, financial generosity with what he calls the five measures of well-being. Happiness, bodily health, purpose in living, avoidance of depression, and interest in personal growth. Those Americans who consistently practiced giving away 10% or more of their income experienced greater happiness, physical health, stronger sense of purpose in life, avoidance of symptoms of depression, and greater interest in personal growth. Basically, the summary statement of his findings is this. Generous people tend to receive back goods that are even more valuable than those they gave. Maybe this is one aspect to what Paul is talking about when he talks about reaping generously. But this is not new. The prophet Isaiah wrote about this phenomenon 2,500 years ago. Here's what he said. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom shall be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. That's emotional language. It's poetic parallelism. Darkness and gloom are parallel terms. It's describing negative emotions. Maybe included in there is despair, even depression. The doldrums. The text says that when you pour yourself out for the hungry, satisfy the desire of the afflicted. That is when you are giving of yourself in order to serve others. Maybe that means giving your time. That's energy, attention, money. Maybe it's all that. When you are a giver, when you're a giver, Then shall your light rise in darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. We're killing ourselves emotionally with overconsumption. Killing ourselves. We experience an emotional shift from gloom to joy as we shift from consuming to giving. I want to conclude with one additional reflection because these four practices to employ in daily life in order to train our emotional instincts, assume you're already a born-again Christian. They assume that. But I don't want to make that assumption. In 2 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul encourages us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. So to close, I want to do some of that. Because if you're not in the faith, If you're not a true follower of Jesus Christ, then we're skipping the first and most important step to seeing emotional transformation take place in your life. Pastor tells a story that illustrates this. He says, once during a, a prison Bible study in the drug and alcohol unit, I was teaching on the bondage of the will. One of the inmates bristled and then blurted out, Preacher, do you mean to tell me I don't have free will? 
Yes, that is what I'm saying the Bible teaches, I replied. I don't buy it, he said irritably. So I asked him, are you incarcerated for a drug or alcohol-related offense? The question was a safe one, considering my location. He said, yes. I asked, have you ever wanted to stop abusing drugs and alcohol? He said quietly, yes, I've tried many times. If your will is free and you can do what you will, then why not just stop? The reason you can't say no is that you are a slave. Your will is a slave to your own sinful nature. Now, maybe your problem isn't drugs or alcohol. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's, it's anger, it's anxiety, it's bitterness, it's envy, some sort of sexual immorality. Just like this man who was incarcerated, you can't put yourself together by a sheer act of your will. If you're not a genuine Christian, you're not free to do that. You're a slave to your sinful nature. You need God to perform a miracle on you. This is what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is not about waking up one morning and resolving to be more morally and spiritually better from there on out. Being a Christian is hitting your knees, pleading with God to change you from the inside out, to make you into a new creation. Being a Christian is about agreeing with God that you're a slave to your sinful nature and you need him to free you from it. Until you've done that, you're skipping the first and most critical step in experiencing emotional transformation. And so my plea with you is to do that. Say to God, God, I can't fix myself. I'm a slave to my sinful nature. I need you to free me. I need you to change me. I need you to perform a miracle on me. God is eager to answer that prayer. Now, for the rest of us, we have got work to do. We need to be emotionally sanctified. We need to grow in emotional holiness. Emotional holiness. Let's be different with this. Let's be different with this. And let's ask the Lord for help. Let's pray. And Lord, we do, we do need your spirit to sanctify us through and through. That our hearts would value the right things to the right degree in the right manner. And the outflow of that would be godly emotions. Godly desires, godly affections, godly feelings. I pray that we would be quick, Lord, to confess that what we find inside us is often not honoring to your son. Help us, Lord, to confess that, knowing that there is free and full forgiveness at the cross. Lord, as we are changed from one degree of glory to another, may Jesus be clearly seen in us. We ask this in his name. Amen.